0: Lord, there are difficult things that we'll read this morning in this text. There are difficult things that Tracy just read to us. Words that we hear you speaking, and our initial initial, uh, response to that might be hesitation. It might be bristling. It might feel as though you're coming to condemn. But Lord, what we pray for this morning is the grace to hear even the difficult words that you speak as grace. Your your desire to bring conviction of sin as grace. Your desire to show us our need for you as grace. And so, Lord, point us to the cross this morning. Point us to your love and mercy in saying the things that our hearts need to hear. Open our hearts to those realities by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This isn't going to be the perfect uh, opening illustration. It's also going to be a little nerdy. So I just ask you to bear with me. My favorite Star Wars movie is, and always will be, The Empire Strikes Back. All right, now listen to me. Uh, It was, that was true when I was a kid. It's true, you know, when it was re-released when I was in high school, right before my senior year when they they trotted out the new horrible trilogy. Um, It continues to be to this day. There are a lot of reasons for it. But mostly I like how The Empire Strikes Back sets up the unknowns of the third movie, like I like how impossible the situation feels at the end because as you watch it, you just know that somehow it's from the depths of this kind of despair, you know, Luke kind of hanging there in all of his whininess, that the empire would have to get toppled. How's that going to happen? What makes it so compelling is actually how bleak the situation was, right? And the setup for that begins in the first movie, A New Hope. Extends through this, the second movie throughout the second movie because right away Luke Skywalker has this belief that his lineage comes from Simply comes simply from the Jedi Knights from those fighting the Empire and that his father was actually a hero who battled The evil Darth Vader and lost his life in that battle Darth Vader killed his dad uh, But he sees himself in that way that that's his lineage. That's his heritage and so he's picking up where his dad left off and he's gonna succeed in those ways Right? Um, Listen, the statute of limitation on spoilers for this one has long since passed, so I don't feel bad in telling you uh, if you don't know at this point. Uh, It's at the end of this second film that we come to hear what remained to this day, the four most famous words of the Star Wars franchise, which is Darth Vader telling Luke, I am your father, right? And everyone's like, what? And that's because it's in this moment that Skywalker realizes his situation is more centrally difficult and dark than he had ever imagined, you know, than he ever imagined. Because here, you know, when Darth Vader, when you watch that closing scene, as you can get on YouTube later today, right? You watch that closing scene, Darth Vader please, pleading with him, With Luke to join the dark side you come to realize you know he's doing it as a father to a son telling his son essentially you come from the dark side like the dark side is your heritage it's within you there are demons within you that you don't even realize it's your natural state don't you realize your true lineage oh like I said it's not a perfect illustration because here Skywalker is really the primary protagonist in the first trilogy and um But we should also point out the reason he's the protagonist, you know, the reason he's successful is because he realizes the depths of his problem. He realizes it. Something similar is happening in John 8 this morning, only without the realization, completely absent the realization. Because Jesus continues to speak to this crowd that he's been talking to. We've been slowly working our way through this dialogue that he's having at the Feast of Tabernacles slowly working our way through this conversation. And in this conversation, he alludes to the reality that the the crowd's father isn't who they think. The people are going to make two paternal claims. When I say paternal, I don't mean kind or fatherly. I mean from what lineage, right? They make two claims about where their lineage comes from. Two paternal claims, both of which Jesus responds to in the text, followed by Jesus then revealing... Their true ancestry, and then showing them the means by which they might have his ancestry. Okay, so that's essentially the outline of the text. Two paternal claims, both of which are making different kinds of arguments in favor of their lineage, in favor of their heritage, followed then by their paternal reality, a path to to true sonship. Okay, um, if that doesn't make sense, if it's not clear here at the front end, I hope and I think it will be by the end. And you can always come up to me afterwards and ask me, ask me more about it if you're confused. I thought for just a couple of seconds, just a couple of seconds, about entitling the sermon Who's Your Daddy? But it was <laughs> even more um, nerdy than the opening illustration. So instead, we're going to look at humanity's spiritual lineage. A little bit more boring, more appropriate. So instead, um, let's, let's start with verse 39, the paternal... Claim number one, okay? Uh, before, we, before we read verse 39, though, let me just, let's back up. Let's make our way through the context so that the flow of conversation makes sense. If you missed last week, I do encourage you, go back and listen. It's going to give a lot of context to what we're looking at here. But in last week's text, do you remember? Jesus addresses the crowd with wh- what we call the marks of genuine faith. right? So the crowd expresses belief. There's like a stated belief in the claims that Jesus was making about himself. They say, we believe, right? Jesus says, listen, if your claim is genuine, you'll persevere in the gospel. If your claim is genuine, you'll submit to the authority of my word. If your claim is genuine, you'll experience life transformation from it. Like, there'll be change in your life as a result of that expressed faith. So there are these markers of faith. Not all claims of faith are genuine, okay, is what Jesus is saying. And increasingly so, he says, Many from this crowd who claim to believe don't actually believe. And he ends that section in last week's text by essentially giving us three baseline reasons they don't believe in verse 38. So we see kind of the primary thing, and we're going to unpack this. But he says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. Here's the baseline reason. So Jesus speaks to the reality here. That his father is the father, number one. His father is God himself. That they have a different father altogether, and really they've misdiagnosed the problem. And it's that misdiagnosis, right, that we've seen throughout chapters 7 and 8. They thought of themselves as sons, but Jesus says, you're slaves, do you remember? And now they're misdiagnosing their spiritual lineage, where they come from. And it's that statement that he makes here that really causes them to bristle. How dare he claim, you know, how dare he claim that his father is God and we come from a different father. And it's in that context that they make the first of two paternal claims, both of which make a different kind of argument in favor of their spiritual lineage that we'll talk about. You can jot down this morning, okay, starting in verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. So the first paternal claim they make is Abraham, and it's here that we see, you know, the first argument this really makes is a moral argument, if you're taking notes. We see a moral argument from the people. In other words, yes, there is a strong sense in which the people continue to make an argument from ethnicity, a biological argument, right, by appealing to their ancestry, to their family tree, and saying, look, our, our family tree extends all the way back to Abraham, so that's part of it. So we're, we're his children by way of this family tree, that's part of it. But it's more than that. It's not just a biological, ethnic kind of argument. It's a moral argument, argument, an ethical argument. An argument that essentially says that they measure up well enough to be called Abraham's children. They measure up well enough in following the law, essentially in obedience, to be linked with this man who went forth and obeyed God when he was called to go to this place. Right? So they see themselves in that way. Their obedience gives them credentials to be called abraham's kids after all jesus has just addressed perseverance and transformation as marks of genuine faith so they're saying essentially in part they're saying we have those marks we possess that mark we measure up to those marks right we're abraham's kids we're people of obedience and the reason we can know that this is the implied implied claim they're making when they claim abraham in part is because of how jesus responds to it he doesn't go after their biological lineage. Instead, he challenges in no uncertain terms any ethical or moral claim that they make that would cause them to say we're Abraham's kids, right? So, in other words, Jesus doesn't respond this time by making that distinction that we've been talking about between being ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. We even looked at it last week together. So last week we saw language that mirrored very much what the Apostle Paul writes when he says... Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, right? In other words, a true claim to be Abraham's children comes about from the Spirit of God at work in us, not through something that we've done, not through our family tree. It comes about through regeneration, not through mere ethnicity, okay? It's inward, not outward. And that was Jesus' argument last week because the crowd was continually pointing back to their heritage. But here, the implication is more than simple biological heritage. So Jesus goes beyond it. Look with me at the text, starting in verse 39, that second half. Second half of verse 39. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. You see the focus is on works be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. This is something uh, Jesus is going to bring back to our attention later on. Okay? Now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. All right, so Jesus exposes a problem with each of these paternal claims and the arguments they attempt to make. So paternal claim number one is Abraham. The argument it seeks to make is a moral argument, but the the first problem he exposes is this. Number one, their their conduct does not match their claim. Their conduct doesn't match their claim. Okay, in fact, their conduct is really quite strange for those who would claim that Abraham is their father. It's weird. They're nothing like him. And so, you know, we all know the idiom, and I think this is really the the larger illustration in general terms that Jesus is working with here when he's teaching the crowds. We know the idiom, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Like there, there are many ways in which children are like their parents. We often look like our parents. We often share the same mannerisms, you know, the same expressions. All right, every now and again, and this is true of all of my kids in different ways, every now and again someone will look at my son Jack and say, oh, oh, there's Jeremy, you know. Um, And some of you know what I'm talking about. And Jesus uses this idea generally as an illustration of the reality that Abraham can't be their father. They're nothing alike. The reason he can't be is their conduct in this particular situation, their ethics, their moral compass, their works. And even more than that, as we'll see, it's their natural state that's the problem. And Jesus ends this by once again alluding to a different father. So Abraham isn't a great match, really in any way. He doesn't pass the test, but there is a solid match out there, Jesus says. There is someone who I can put forward credibly. All right. So this is paternal claim number one. It's Abraham, a moral argument, one that appeals not only to the biological lineage, but ethical lineage. Jesus applies a simple paternity test, right? A simple paternity test. The envelope comes out, pulls it out. Abraham is not the father. Crowd goes crazy. Okay. Okay. He can't be. He can't be the father because their conduct simply does not match their claim, All right. So they pivot to paternal claim number two, starting in verse 41 where I really think that they think they have Jesus trapped now, okay? So look here. They said to him we were not born of sexual immorality. Okay, so stop there for a minute. First of all, kudos to Tracy, drawing out in her tone the offensiveness of the crowd at this remark? Like, they're offended by Jesus' remark here. We were not born in sexual immorality. What, what does that mean? Well, you know, I, it's actually not impossible that by saying this, the Jews are throwing some shade back at Jesus and his lineage, all right? In other words, it very well could mean something along the lines of, hey, listen, we're not the ones who are illegitimate children here, Jesus. Like, let's think back on this. We all know that would, we're not the ones who doesn't know who our true father is. Rumor has it that that would be you. Either way, there's no denying the reality that they don't like it. They don't like the idea that Jesus is putting forward, that they don't know who their father is. We were not born of sexual immorality is another way of saying we're not illegitimate children, spiritually, biologically, right? We're not, but we're not uh, illegitimate. And so they up the ante of their claim. Not only from their perspective, do they have a rightful claim on Abraham by way of their obedience, by way of their heritage, okay? But they also believe themselves to be so superior that they can even make the claim that God himself is their father. And that's, here we see paternal claim number two. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. This is in many ways, you know, I think it is a continuance of the moral argument. It's one that we continue to make today. If you ever read, and I encourage you to, uh, The Gospel-Centered Life by Bob Thune and Will Walker, the second lesson talks about this tendency of the human heart that we have toward either pretending or performing. That we either undercut the holiness of God by thinking we can perform our way into the kingdom, or we minimize our sinfulness and the reality, the state of our hearts, by, thinking, by pretending that we're actually not so bad. So our hearts really gravitate between pretending and performing. That's something that we continue to do to this day. We think that we can measure up to even God's standards through this pretending and performing. By doing this, we minimize the cross. But once again, it's, it's also more than that. In a sense, the crowd knows this claim can't be refuted by Jesus. Because it's a scriptural argument, you know? Whereas their appeal to Abraham was based on their obedience. It was a moral argument. That was the first kind of argument we see. Here we see a scriptural argument. They appeal to God as father, which is rooted in their understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. And so when I said, I really think they might think they have Jesus trapped to a certain extent with this pivot, with this second point, the second claim, it's because surely, surely he can't push back on this one. The idea that God would be our father, he can't say anything about that. What's he going to say? How could he say it's not true? After all, Exodus 4.22 clearly states, God's speaking, and he says, Israel is my firstborn. You know? In Jeremiah 32, Deuteronomy chapter 14, he declares, I am Israel's father. This sentiment is expressed throughout the Old Testament scriptures. There's no getting away from it. So Jesus is kind of stuck, right? He has two options, it seems. He either has to deny the claim And by doing so, denying the word, you know, so he says, yeah, no, I I disagree with the Bible. I disagree with the Old Testament scriptures. And by doing that, he would undermine his own own mark of genuine faith from last week, which is abiding in the word. Jesus wouldn't be abiding in his word, you know. So he either has to depart from his own words about abiding in the word. Or he has to admit that they share, you know what, we do share the same father. You're right. The word is right. We share the same father. I shouldn't have been so strong in my language. So how does does he respond? Look look at the beginning. Well, there are a few verses. We'll just start in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came, not of my own accord, but he sent me. So Jesus, let's just start this way, because I think this is really timely for us. Jesus doesn't deny... Old Testament text. He doesn't deny the word. But you know what he does deny? He denies the way the the word is being interpreted by these people, by those who are claiming to be God's children. And listen, this this is something that's true today. People will appeal to the word today as a means of trapping Jesus in the same way right now. You know, we'll hear people use Jesus' words all the time like this. We'll hear people say, well, if Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, and that's clearly, are you denying that Jesus said that? Are you denying that we shouldn't judge? And, and, and this is a way of saying Christians shouldn't make right judgments. They shouldn't declare, here's the difference between what's sin and not sin, or gospel and false teaching, that Christians need to be unconcerned about that because Jesus says, judge not, unless you, you want to be judged. People appeal to texts all the time that are where Jesus is talking about love as a means of saying that Christians should support everyone in whatever they want to do and, again, kind of erode the idea of, of human sin. Those words of Jesus are misused to come to the opposite of the meaning, and that happens all the time. And listen, the way we're called to respond is the way that Jesus responds here. We, we, we don't deny the word for reasons that we'll talk about in, in just a second, the same reasons that Jesus doesn't deny the word. But we do deny when the word is suddenly interpreted to mean something it's never meant in 2000 years of church history. That's when we can say, well, it's a red flag. Right, so of course, you know, Jesus doesn't deny the word, why? The word testifies about him. You know, Jesus can't unhitch himself from the Old Testament. He can't just say, well, let's leave that Old Testament stuff behind, right? He can't do that because it's about him. It's his word, and in fact, he is the word made flesh. This way he doesn't deny the word, but he does deny its interpretation. And the reason he denies their interpretation of these texts has already been given in the previous weeks. Do we remember this? The gospel, the good news that Jesus comes to proclaim, it shapes the human heart. Right? So the inward transformation that the gospel brings about actually brings outward change. Spiritual regeneration, this term that we use a lot, New birth, like new life that we have in Jesus, that we'll talk about this morning. It brings about an outward change. This inward reality brings about an outward change with how we live. So Jesus says the problem, again, he's saying, the problem is that your conduct doesn't match your claim. But again, it's more than that. Not only does their conduct not match their claim, but Jesus gets more specifically here, specific here, to address how that's the case. So the moral argument of Abraham. Uh, Their conduct doesn't match their claim. Now this scriptural argument of God being their father, he says, wait, your loves don't match the father's likeness. Your loves don't match the father's likeness. They're claiming, in some sense, like we talked before, a likeness after God. They're claiming to be his children, but they don't love the things the father loves. They don't love the things of the father. Specifically, they don't love the one this father sent into the world. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. The God that you claim is your father, I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. He says, everything that I'm telling you, I heard him say. This is your, my father sent me. So if we share the same father, you would embrace me. And the idea here is if they aren't enthusiastically embracing the one that the father sent into this world, the one with right claims of sonship true claims of sonship how can they claim to truly know that father you know it must be instead one of those we see it we see it in our time one of those wild paternal claims from a distance that someone makes to be the long-lost son of some celebrity in order to gain notoriety like that comes up in the news from time to time someone who says oh yeah i'm the long-lost son of this famous person. They want publicity. They want notoriety. They want money. They want some kind of payoff. Jesus says it must be the case here. This must not be genuine. So um, you might be wondering what about these passages then? In which God says, because the scriptures say this Israel is my firstborn. I am Israel's father. This idea of God being father to his people. Are these. Are these scriptures now untrue? You know, the way the Apostle Paul phrases the same problem in Romans 9 that we read a portion of, not all who are Israel are Israel. The way he phrases the problem is really similar. Essentially, he says, has the word of God failed? And that's the implied question that he's asking. Has the word of God failed? Right? right? So has the word of God failed? Why? Because it claims the true sonship of Israel, and yet Israel has rebelled and disobeyed, and they failed to recognize Jesus. So the word must have failed because the word said that they were sons. But the answer is no, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, those passages must be talking about someone else. Certainly there are those among ethnic Israel who are included in this, just as there are some people who are here that are making claims of faith, and Jesus uh, believes them to be genuine, right? Okay? John is shepherding his readers to rightly respond to Jesus through some of these, these claims of faith. So some of them are genuine. Okay, But these verses are not saying that sonship is determined along the lines of ethnicity. Rather, it's spiritual regeneration, new birth, being born again, granted, granted sheer grace by the Father. Him doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, but we're going to get there. So it reminds us of chapter 1 again so we keep going back to the prologue week after week we keep reading the same verses you know who is it that we're given the right to become children of god in john's prologue do you remember the reason we keep coming back here by the way is because john keeps developing the themes from the prologue throughout the gospel account and so he writes this he says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him so we're seeing again front row seat to the people rejecting him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So immediately we see that it's not ethnicity, it's not works, right? Like, you are God's people if you receive Jesus, believe upon his name. You're true Israel if you receive him, believe in his name. You're true children because he so changes your heart that you're now inclined toward him. He says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. True sonship, when I say sonship, I just mean those who are inheritors of the kingdom. They're sons, right? So we're all children, but but more than that in these terms, we're sons in the sense of we're inheritors. We're full inheritors of the blessings of Christ. True sonship of the Father comes about by sheer grace. Not by works, not by an ethnic claim, not by a moral claim. Sheer grace, the work of God, because it could never be our work, and we're going to see why in a second. And Jesus has said this so many times in these, just in these last two chapters. He said it so many times that we might wonder why exactly they're not, the crowd doesn't understand. But listen, this is when we need to realize that we tend to misdiagnose things too. We don't see who we are rightly in the text as we read. And we think, well, what's wrong with these people who don't get it? And it's like, that story is our story. Okay, so listen. Verse 43, Jesus has the same question. Why do you not understand what I say? Right? He says, he tells us why. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. So if what Jesus is speaking out, because that's literally what this word say means, spoken speech. That's what Jesus is saying to them. If that's unclear, Jesus says the reason is they actually can't bear to hear it. The word hear also has the sense of obey. But think about that for a minute. Like, they can't bear to hear it. This is why why repentance can be so elusive. It's really hard to hear about our sinful condition and not push back against, not, not be offended by it, you know. It's really hard to, to, to hear Jesus proclaim about our humanity's sinful condition and not immediately get defensive or feel kind of beaten down or feel like, you know, he must be saying something bad. Instead of Jesus speaking grace to us by exposing the problem, right? So they can't bear to hear it. And this is why, you know, pastorally, there are sadly situations in which sin is exposed, the prayer is for repentance. But honestly, you can actually see, you can see the layers thickening, you know, of defense, self-defense. And you can see someone who just, and, and this is true of, of the human heart apart from Christ, right? We just can't bear to hear about our own sin. We can't bear to hear it. We, you know, like, we'll do anything to avoid it. And so we avoid repentance. You know, to be clear, it's not that, it's important to understand when Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Right? It's not because his idioms and imagery and illustrations are so hard to understand. It's not like, you don't understand me because the words that I'm using are too complex. The ideas are too complex, you know. Whose fault would it be if that were the case? The the fault would lay with Jesus and his communication. But that's not the case here. The problem is actually not with his communication, but their ability to hear and obey what he says, they can't grasp it. That's the, uh, that's the idea here. They can't grasp it. It reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 when he, when he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Like, we, we can't understand truth, and we're going to see that even more clearly in something Jesus is going to say in a little bit, right? So we're starting to see here the problem that Jesus is addressing here is not just the crowd's problem. Let's not read this text like, oh shame on these guys. Like I've talked before when we do our devos and we got our morning coffee, you know, sun's out and we're reading John seven and eight. It's so easy to be so like just have such an attitude toward the top. What's wrong with these guys, right? Um, this discern rightly who we are in the text, that their problem is our problem. Our hearts gravitate, apart from Christ and his mercy, our hearts gravitate toward the same pretending and performing. And it's something that we need the gospel for all the time. The idea of, of performing, that I can actually measure up to God, pretending that my sin isn't as bad as it is. Right? So, okay, we've seen two paternity tests. The envelopes have come out. Abraham is not the father, crowd goes nuts. God is not the father, crowd goes nuts. The first test failed because their conduct didn't match their claim. The second test was failed, pretty clear, this simple paternity test. Their loves, their desires didn't match God's likeness. His loves, his desires, but that really prompts the question, now whose conduct does match theirs? Whose likeness does their, do their loves resemble, their des- deepest desires resemble? Look at verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and look at this next phrase, your will is to do your father's desires. You see both that moral component, to do, and the love's component, his desires, right? You share the same desires and loves, you share the same works, therefore, you're desiring to do his works. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So we've seen paternal claim one, paternal claim two. But now we see paternal, the paternal reality, who their father actually is. Jesus has told them their claim doesn't match their conduct. They don't share any likeness with the ones they've claimed as father. They don't share the desires, they don't share the, the ethics, but there is one whose likeness is uncanny in both of these categories. Their desires, boom, match up, and therefore their works match up because our, our works always follow our heart, what we desire. Their works just match right up, okay? So, so we have a paternity test with a positive result. The envelope comes out. Satan, you are the father. And again, crowd goes that's because this is a very... this This is a provocative claim that Jesus makes. Whereas they did not look like Abraham, whereas they did not love the things of the Lord, here's a father that they both resemble and whose work, therefore, they're actively trying to carry out. They want to carry out their father's desires. God desired to send his son into the world to save the world. They didn't share that desire because what it means implicitly is something about their sin, as we've seen for the last several weeks. It's something about their need of him that they don't want to hear about. They're fine talking about the need of other people for that kind of a Messiah, but not for them. So they reject that one whom God has sent. However, two desires or loves of the devil are noted here. And and Jesus is saying both of them are... Are things that naturally we share. Why? Because they, they point us right back to the garden, right back to Genesis chapter 3. So look closer with me. You know, we see both of these desires in what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden, right, that brought about the fall of humanity. So first, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. What is this talking about? Well, it's, I think it's, it's in the beginning, right, so it's, allusion, it's an illusion back to Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, where God spoke He gave us instruction. He gave us his word. But humanity decided, and we use this language a lot at at GLC because I want it ingrained in us. But humanity decided that we knew better than God, right? Um, Our agenda was greater than God's agenda. We could do a better job than God, right? So we attempted to dethrone God, put ourselves on the throne. And Satan, right, what's his role? He's actively tempting humanity toward a distrust of God's word. So it reminds us of this first question that Satan asks in the garden when he says, Did God really say, did God really say? When humanity actively distrusted God's word, all of a sudden, spiritual death came cascading into the world. He sought to snuff out the world's spiritual life by by causing distrust of the word of God, a distrust that continues today in a myriad of ways in which we hear all the time, sometimes even from those claiming often to be Christians. Did God really say, though, he really say so he's a murderer from the very beginning he sought to snuff out spiritual life but second jesus says satan doesn't stand in truth for there's no truth in him he abandoned the truth and again i think this is especially by way of that in the beginning from the beginning right i think it's bringing us back to the garden he doesn't stand in truth do you remember what what else he says? he says "Did god really say causing distrust in god's word but then he openly challenges god's word Specifically, the idea of divine judgment with this outward lie of you will surely not die. You will surely not die. God's wrong about that. Yeah, sure, you heard him say that, but God must be wrong because you will not die. There will be no judgment from God. But what did God clearly state in Genesis 2.17? What were the exact words? you shall surely die. If you heed of this, you shall surely die. Satan says the exact opposite, you guys. He says, you will surely not die. He abandons truth. And again, so we see both of these components in humanity clearly in our culture. We hear constantly, did God really say? And then, no, that's not how it is. You will surely not die. We hear it about all of these categories, some of which we talked about last week. And, and, and so he abandons the truth. But Jesus goes further than this. He says, when Satan lies, he speaks his own native language. That's really what the text is saying. Literally, the translation says he, you know, the way one commentary says it, he speaks out of his own nature, his essential characteristics. Right? It's his lying is his native tongue. Lying is Satan's baseline. Lies are his base reality. Lies um, are his heart. For most of us here, our, our native language is English. It's what we learned growing up. So if we go to a different country, we want to communicate with people speaking a different language in that country. I'm not sure if you've ever you know, gone somewhere where they don't, you, you don't share the language, and so now you're kind of scrambling to try to figure out how to say certain things, especially if you're going to be there for a while. You know, uh, it's, it's difficult. God, God's native language is truth. It's the only language he speaks. Humanity's native language is opposition to truth because of what happens in the garden. And and it's the only language that we know apart from the grace of God. Humanity's native language opposes God's truth. But God's children are those whose hearts are so changed, so transformed, that we're actually given a new heart language. Which I want you to think about how remarkable that is. I want you to think about what would be necessary to be given a, a completely new heart language. A completely new native tongue. Not just a completely new understanding of a language, but like a new native language, a new native tongue, okay? That's how transformed our hearts are, all right? We learn to, to speak like our Father, right? Um, a new native tongue where those who over time with, while the old native language continues to attempt to slip in there from time to time, for sure, we learn to speak like our Father because we love his language, we love the truth, we love what he loves. He's changed our hearts, he's changed our in, in, inclinations he's changed our nature not through our work but through his and we'll talk about how in just a little bit so we come to love what he loves but those who do not receive him simply stay in their native language their native tongue in which there is no truth it doesn't mean that true things can't be stated right that's not what it means it doesn't mean that no true reality can be reached but rather the baseline is opposition to god and that's precisely why we can't understand him. Actually, look at the grammar of verse 45, and I told you it was going to come to us in stronger terms. That, that, that uh, idea that the Apostle Paul wrote about where natural man can't understand things of the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Why don't we believe? Because he spoke the truth, and we, we can't understand. You know, I took three years of Spanish in high school and a year in college. I don't remember most of it. This is confession time, all right? Um, and I'm bummed about that, legitimately, right? That was a lot of t- time and effort. And you kind of have this idea when you're in college studying Spanish and you had, you had some time in high school where you're studying. You kind of have this idea that, well, now I'm going to be bilingual, obviously, you know. Um, but, you know, it's, I don't remember most of it compiling the problem. I was really in my late teens and early 20s when I first started learning it. I was brought up speaking a different language. That's the language I dream in. It's the language native to my heart. It's the language that I think and process in, right? Like, it's not a perfect illustration because I realize people can make a language shift, but think about it this way. If I were to have right now, right now as a 40-something-year-old, if I were to have Spanish not just as a known language, but as my native tongue, you know, as like my heart language, as my native language, what would have to happen? I'd have to be reborn into a Spanish-speaking home. No amount of my own initiative could really change that. And so, not a perfect illustration, but if, if truth is to become our native language, what do we need? It's not our own effort, you know? It's not our own initiative that changes that. What we need is new birth, God's initiative, His grace and mercy in showing it to us because we just won't ever understand or believe anything about the truth apart from Him. How could we? We can't even hear Him. But listen, like, some of us might hear that and think... Well, if I can't understand the truth, like, what's, what do I do? Like, how does this work? I have non-believing friends who don't know Christ. How do I speak truth? Carson's really helpful. D.A. Carson writes this about verse 45. He says, from an evangelistic point of view, so from the point of view of sharing our faith with others, you know, the point of view of our friends and neighbors and coworkers coming to Gospel Life Church over the course of many weeks, many months, many years into the future, from an evangelistic point of view, this combination of themes, do you know what it does? He says it strips away any ground of boasting or arrogance from, for the, from those who do believe. Right? So, those of us at Gospel Life Church who do believe, this, these themes strip away arrogance because we didn't come to believe this because we were so smart, because our hearts were so good, because of something about us. We figured out what others didn't. We were such a good candidate for it. So, it strips away arrogance or boasting because it's sheer grace. But it also, so Carson continues. From an evangelistic point of view, this combination of themes strips away any ground of boasting or arrogance from those who do believe, while it challenges unbelievers at the core of their being, instantly demanding that they reconsider the direction and entire array of values that have stamped their life up to this point. It challenges, right? So meaningfully and relationally bringing a challenge to those who think differently in the world around us. That's what we're trying to do at Gospel Life Church, right? We, we desire to engage with skeptics with the good news of Jesus. We desire to bring challenge, but what does it look like to bring challenge? It means gospel proclamation and leaving, leaving the fruit of that up to the Lord, right? It means continued gospel proclamation, knowing that it's the Spirit of God who's working. So we open our Bibles with our non-believing friends in the anticipation that as we do that, the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to do what we can't do, to change hearts, Right? Spirit of God works through the word of God in the same way that it worked in my life, that it's the same way it worked in all of our lives, to bring a transformed heart, because it strips away any boasting or arrogance or pride. And I think that naturally makes us more evangelistic, because listen, if we're a group of people who think that we came to know the Lord because we were so good, uh, you know, that just the, the pride of that makes you very unlikable, right? And understandably so. Because it's like, I'm so good, and maybe you can become, you know, like I responded so rightly. I did such. But man, we, we're more naturally evangelists when we see the sheer grace of Christ because we come in with this humble posture that says, yes, I know truth, and I can boldly say that I know truth, but I know truth not because of me. I couldn't know the truth apart from Christ, but because of Christ's mercies, and the same mercies that were offered to me in Jesus are also offered to you. So, how does it happen? Right? How does it happen? Because, you know, this is where, before we get to verse 46, you know, this is where we might be, feel, feel beaten down. And I want to avoid that here, because we might think, oh great, I came to church Labor Day weekend to hear Jeremy tell me that my true father's the devil. All right, great. Um, you know, and, and also to, to, to hear, like, I can't do, like, humanity's spiritual lineage, the default mode of the human heart, apart from God's grace and mercies, our spiritual lineage is fall sin right and I can't do it I can't do it I can't actually make something else my own native I can't make truth my own native language that has to be the work of God so it can feel maybe a little hopeless but I want to tell you there's so much hope Jesus is being so loving here let's avoid the tendency of thinking Jesus must be somehow harsh in a way that's unloving or hateful or rebuking because he's saying these things. Jesus, is his mercy is so present in showing us our need because he doesn't just show us our need, you guys, like throughout, and we're going to see it even more next week, but like he doesn't show us our need throughout. He shows us our deep need, but then he shows us the degree to which he went to supply that need with mercy so that we might know Christ. Like by showing us our need, he shows us how we might know God. grace and mercy so so how does it happen here's the path to true sonship again sonship meaning inheritors of the blessing full inheritors those who are part of God's kingdom in full verses 46 and 47 which one of you convicts me of sin I tell you the truth why do you not believe me whoever is of God hears the words of God the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So that kind of restates a little bit of what we were talking about from 1 Corinthians 2. It's really important, though. I want to, I want to we'll focus on all of this, but I want to primarily focus on that first rhetorical question. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Because if we misunderstand what he's saying, we, we miss the thrust, I think. Jesus is not asking whether anyone in the crowd thinks he's guilty, you know. Obviously they do. He's not saying, which one of you thinks I'm guilty? We've seen, they think he's guilty of denying the Sabbath. They think he's guilty of, you know, uh, blasphemy by claiming to be God. They think he's guilty of spiritual pride by saying he's better than them. They've come with an awful long list of things that they believe he's guilty of. So he's not asking if they think he's guilty. The question is whether anyone can prove it. Can they substantiate this claim? And we're going to see similar themes raised as we get into the trial in chapter 18, you know, like Jesus' trial starting in 18. The idea here isn't simply that they can't prove it. The idea isn't just that they have no proof, because obviously someone can still be guilty of murder and get away with it. You know, like, you might not have proof, but they get away with it. It's not just that they have no proof, but rather Jesus says, I, if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? You can't substantiate it precisely because what I'm saying is true. I actually am. Jesus is substantiating his sinlessness. He's assuring the readers of his sinlessness. He's assuring the hearers of where he comes from. That, that the God true, that, that the God of the Old Testament scriptures is truly his father, that actually he is, as we'll see next week, God himself entered into human history, and as we've seen before in these proclamations. Right. And so he doesn't come with the same problem of sin and so as a result he's able to stand in our place. He's able to actually invite us into true sonship. And because he can stand in our place, because he can take the punishment that we deserved at the cross, right? Something he couldn't do if he shared the same problem, he need someone else to come, right? But he's sinless. He comes as one who can stand in our place. Though we are not From God, as verse 47 points out, we're given the means by which we might be reconciled to him at the cross. And this is really, really important. It's significant for us to understand when when the Old Testament says, Israel is my firstborn. Yeah, I mean, it's talking about those who are spiritual Israel, those who have, ultimately, those who have faith in Christ to do what they can't do for themselves. But in an even more ultimate baseline sense, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Israel. Jesus is the one who would come perfectly as son, firstborn son, so that through the work of the true firstborn son, through the work of the one who was sent by the Father, God himself entering into human history to do what we couldn't do, we can be called, we can have his status. We can enter into that sonship. We have the means by which we might be reconciled to God. To have our hearts change, to have our language change, to be a people of truth rather than a people of lies, to be those who really can know and grasp and understand truth. It's God's grace to us that he came to expose the problem of our hearts, the depths of our sinfulness, the central problem we face, our separation from God, our heart's inclination, to do the opposite of what he calls us to do. And yet when we see that he's also provided the solution to that problem to such a great degree in Jesus Christ doing for us what we're unable to do that he came to die for us, we stop striving in the sense of pretending and performing. We stop the treadmill of attempting to save ourselves. We rest. You know, it's not Labor Day, it's Mercy's Day. (laughs) You know, like we rest in his grace and mercies, we become true children. And then our hearts, by his mercies, are inclined to follow. They're inclined to speak the new language. Our hearts are changed. Our, our desires are changed so that what we do is changed. Right? He did this that you might be called his child. And if, listen, if you hear this pro- proclaimed this morning, you're not someone who you would have said, I'm a skeptic or I'm a non-believing person. But you sense your heart awakened by that grace, it's not because of you, it's because of his spirit at work in you, but it's a sign that he's at work. Call out to him by your mercies. Don't leave here until you tell someone that you're calling out to to him, that you're throwing yourself on his mercy. And for those of us who've claimed faith and belief, we continue in this same gospel for our joy, transformation, and life in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the work that you've done. Help us. Help us this week, even, to not see conviction of sin as some unloving, hateful, or harsh, overly harsh judgment or discipline, but rather help us to see it as your tender love and care towards those you love. Help us to see your exposing of the central problem such grace and mercy that we can just throw ourselves on your mercies every day, their mercies new every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.